Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Watch New Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And today we have a special guest with us. Would you please introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Troy Sennett. I am Zach's brother-in-law. <laughs> His identity is so much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> he is also a fully-fledged person in his own right, uh, but we brought him in today to talk about the Jordan Peele movie Us from 2019, starring Lupita Nyong'o and following a family as they are confronted by red jumpsuit-wearing doppelganger versions of themselves bent on their destruction. Very succinct. Yeah, it's a deep movie. I'm going to try. I mean, we can't do too much explanation. And if you haven't seen the movie, this is your opportunity to go stop now and watch the movie and then come back because I think there's a lot to it. One of the significant things that I found thematic within the movie was this concept of class stratification. And it was actually something that I thought about because I was reading about Bong Joon-ho's movie Parasite which talks about the idea of class disparity between the wealthy and the poor. And it is visually portrayed throughout the movie by using lower ground and higher ground locations. And at one point in the movie, there's an intense flooding and only the poor people are affected and the rich and, and wealthy are obviously fine. I started to think about this movie as a class stratification analogy because of the fact that all of the others, the uh, the tethered, as they're called, live below the ground. And it is only through Adelaide as a child, or Red as a child, coming up to the surface level to sort of reclaim or trade places like a distorted Prince and the Pauper. Yeah, for sure. There is a lot of abandonment themes in this. The whole underground society, the tethered, is basically a failed government experiment that is just kind of abandoned. And as Red says several times throughout the movie, like, they're Americans, they're humans, they are actual people, and the government just abandoned them after all that time. So, like, they are kind of this subclass and literally a subterranean class of people in the government's eyes and largely forgotten as well. Yeah, that really struck me. Like, this was the second time I've seen this movie, and there's just so much imagery that is, like you guys were mentioning, the literal stratification of classes with the tethered being actually underground, along with even between, like, the two families that are at the center of this movie, especially, in, like, you know, in the first half of it, there's a lot of class jealousy and class-based anxiety between them. Like, Gabe is always jealous of Elizabeth Moss's family, of their boat and their house, and even the, like, the kids are jealous because the twin girls get to drive while they don't, and I thought that was a really interesting sort of foreshadowing of the themes of the movie to have all that stuff that, you know, happened pretty early on where they're kind of like jealous and they, even though they're doing fine, they have a vacation home, they're clearly like not like a poor family, but they still, they, they see even bigger wealth around them and want to sort of rise up to that. And in a way, there's almost this idea, and I think that this is something that's perpetuated in real life, class cannibalization and the way in which they rise through these ranks because Adelaide and Gabe their family they kill the tethered of the white family before dealing with the tethered of their own and so it's almost like a metaphor for like gatekeeping in a way that they by killing that side rise up and they use it as a point of status when they're all in the car 
And she says, I have the highest kill count in the family, so I should drive. And then Adelaide's like, wrong, I actually have it because of that person. So it's it's sort of like the upward momentum idea played out in this mirrored way. It's the small version of the bigger conflict that, you know, that plays out throughout the rest of the movie. It's also sort of interesting to take a look at it as like, we recognize that it's this mirror, that there is mirrored versions of the two groups. And I find it interesting to then think of this class stratification as almost indicative of like the communist red scare, especially because you look at the way that the tethered are coded. They claim to be Americans, which they are. They just are in subterranean America. They're wearing red, obviously, coded for communism. And their structuring is highly organized. They're perceptively volatile. And the hands across America is sort of the like communist ideal of the mass good working together, even if represented negatively or violently. I I don't know if I agree with that. Just because I, I think the point of the whole like hands across America thing was more like it served the ideal Kind of like what you're saying, but I think that it's also to make the larger point of what Hands Across America represents and the campaign kind of completed in the 80s was largely forgotten and not necessarily abandoned, but it's it was considered kind of a failure of a fundraising campaign. It was designed to raise awareness around homelessness and hunger. And they were aiming to raise around 50 to $100 million. They raised, after all the expenses, it was $15 million. So only a fraction of what they were supposed to actually donate. I think that that is kind of the campaign being forgotten pretty soon after all, like the whole fun part of holding hands in a line was over and, and the concerts that went along with it, it was just kind of forgotten and abandoned. And it demonstrates America's lack of awareness to its own social issues that are literally lying beneath the surface. I think that's more of what the point was. I also think that the, the whole idea of Hands Across America is to get a line of people holding hands from sea to Shining Sea. That was kind of like their their tagline. Really quick aside, Sea to Shining Sea. There's a lot of Shining references. I think that that was probably intentional, <laughs> knowing Jordan Peele. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, many shining references. I also like the hands of the hands across America thing, even just as a image to do that. Literally, it would require so much coordination and collective action, which is what the the tethered have to do because it talks about how like they needed to organize, and that's it, that plays into the idea of class struggle and and that, that collective action is the only thing that that can help people sort of rise above the situations that they're in. How does that not make it communist coded? <laughs> no, I think that that totally does kind of play into the into that idea. Workers seize the means of production, Zach. Okay, I see your point in like the collectivism and all that stuff. I just I don't know about like the red scare thing that you you originally brought up. Like, yes, I I see some some parallels between the overall like. Animism. I was just commenting on a comparison of an American sort of tradition. Okay. Or an American history moment. And like the literal use of the color red. Rather than the literal use of the red scare. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. No, that that does make sense. And like at the very end, when you see that line of red stretching across all those hills and mountains, you do get this sense of even though these tethered are like kind of almost like 
primal in their ways and they they can most of them can't even speak they are still able to have this and respect this ideal that red planned out and that there is a higher level of unity and mutual respect among these tethered than there is of the known americans that are now being usurped yeah, they have a sense of solidarity that no other, like, group in the movie really has. I mean, you know, outside of, like, the family units. And willing to sacrifice. I mean, if you look at Pluto, who gave up his life so that they could try to kidnap the rest of the family. Although, largely, it doubles as a revenge story with Red in particular. I wonder, however, what happens if the tethered are entirely successful would they assume the social status of the people that they were replacing possibly i was kind of thinking about that as i was watching this because i had at one point i had the thought like is the tethered's anger and their sort of revenge kind of misplaced they talk about how they were created as a government experiment and then abandoned but the people that they're attacking are also not necessarily like the the government or the elite like billionaire class or whatever it's like a sort of like a a lower like middle and then we don't see the people that actually created the tethered which would have been an an incredible undertaking on its own Mm -hmm. yeah for sure that's a good point we don't actually get to see victor frankenstein right going off of that the idea of these everyday above ground americans kind of being innocent and ignorant to the whole tethered issue there's the systems that are set up the system that is the tethered project the system that is our government and the system of our social classes that have kind of evolved over time and there's this idea of becoming aware of your function within that system and they're they they kind of hint at it when red is doing her final monologue and you get the impression that it's when Addie started dancing as a kind of coping mechanism for the quote-unquote ptsd that then red started realizing that she didn't have to be a part of this system because she then had an outside view of it so it's this idea of once you once you are able to look at the system from the outside and see your function within that system you can then overcome it or you can organize a way to overcome it like red did and i think that that's what they're getting at with just because you're oblivious of the fact that there are these tethered you're still a part of this machine that did manufacture the tethered project yeah you're you're an unwitting co-conspirator in a sense right I like the imagery of all of the rabbits as this sort of indication of purity of sense. Because that's, you know, one of the things that we sort of assume with the the color white of rabbits in particular. And then how it sort of gets distorted. We, we don't really hear about the rabbit later on until Red is talking about how they had to consume the rabbits. And then when we go into the underground, we don't actually get to see the physical rabbits. We just get to see sort of the areas underneath of the boardwalk. Aren't all the rabbits like in the hallways then when she goes down there? Yes, they're being freed as well. Just different cages. Well, and I I was thinking about like, okay, what is the point of the rabbits? Mm -hmm. And I think it is a fast food source. They famously multiply very quickly. Some of the the logistics of the tethered program don't make a whole lot of sense. But that is at least like a clever way to explain how you feed another 300 million people underground. Yeah. The rabbits is a tough one because like, yeah, it is just like a fast food source, but... 
everything in this movie has like another layer of meaning so it's like kind of hard not to look for that in something that is so iconic in this movie and is the entire opening credit sequence is just the image of these rabbits so you're like all right what are the rabbits all about there's also like the the idea of following the white rabbit underground that's a probably another reference point for the rabbits oh yeah alice in wonderland oh i didn't think about that that's a good one I like that. But also, so I started like going figuratively down the rabbit hole. And so I like at first I thought, well, we we use rabbits for Easter imagery and like, you know, the whole the whole thing with Easter being all about Jesus rising from underground uh, from his tomb. And I'm like, well, that that doesn't seem related. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a fair bit of savior imagery in this movie, though, because they they talk about about red as a savior. The, The beginning as this guy holding the sign with the Bible verse on it which is not specifically referencing jesus but it's definitely religious imagery throughout this movie too it was uh from jeremiah yeah the verse is therefore thus saith the lord i will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape although they cry out to me i will not listen to them which is a very pointed tie to the idea of the tethered being just abandoned Mm-hmm. Well, it's also like a warning. Yeah, yeah, that's like something you would see in the Mask of the Red Death, but in a different way, as in like the people at the top are indifferent to the suffering of others. Yep. Well, I also like how that guy was the first to get killed by his tether, because that's who the guy was on the beach that Jason walked up to and saw, and then he drew a picture of him. It was this de- this guy, and you see them as they get to the beach. He's getting pulled into an ambulance, but he's clearly already dead so i like how he's the first one and it's at the edge of the beach like this is the end of the line like his his tether has started this hands across america line and he also is serving as this warning where he is he'd been holding this sign up for what like 30 years it's interesting to position him as the first victim as well as also just the signifier of the homeless population being largely overlooked as it wasn't until significantly later in the film that news reporters and cameras were covering the the sort of chaos, which I suppose you could say that's a timing thing, but it's a bit weird to have this man who has been there for more than a decade suddenly die and nobody noticed that he was replaced by someone in a trench coat and red that looks exactly like him and is also covered in blood. Like the, the, the idea that even his replacement goes unnoticed. There is sort of this doppelganger specific aesthetic to using the scissors as sort of the metaphor for cutting away and discarding the separation or cutting cutting the thread between the two and allowing sort of the tethered to then become free because what are the tethered going to do afterwards i don't know <laughs> that, that's like the huge <laughs> question left at the end of the movie and you also are left with the question of like what is this family going to do now how are they going to continue to survive and also the twist at the end having been adelaide and red all along i think was just a remarkable twist i find that to be really effective and it's i remember even the first time seeing it thinking like well this is a movie about doppelgangers someone's gonna get switched at some point but i really liked it. i thought that was just done really really well and i also realized this time around telegraphed like really really nicely with even the character's name considering that adelaide is most famously a city in australia down under oh, oh right and umbre means shadow yeah the, there's a lot of a lot of good names in this yeah and pluto god of the underworld in roman mythology mm-hmm. and tex texas the lowest of the states 
<laughs> Alright, that one might be a stretch. <laughs> that does, I just think, speak to the detail and of things down to character names. This movie is meticulously constructed in ways that I find really satisfying. For sure. It's neat, too, that they sort of um, blend all of those elements together. Like, I think it's, it's simultaneously self-referential and referential to the horror genre but also it it is highly biblical having actually the the name of the homeless man that gets switched his his name was Ferdy and then it becomes Jeremiah they were really concerned with this and I'm I'm sure that you read up about Duke Nicholson who is in this movie who is the grandson of Jack Nicholson his character's names were Danny and Tony which is yet another shining reference who did he play I'm pretty sure he is one of the the boardwalk salesmen like one of the boardwalk game vendors oh okay okay it's got to be the guy who he like wins the t-shirt from I think so he looks yeah. so much like Jack Nicholson largely his role is covered up by all of the other things like you wouldn't notice him if it wasn't for the fact that his little biography winds up on the IMDb page. But it's the idea that even minute details that we don't necessarily perceive during the watching were still conceived of and developed by Jordan Peele. Yeah, and that that extends to even things like like shot design and like so many reflections in this movie it's at one point Adelaide is just like telling her story to her the reflection of herself in the window and there's just tons of moments like that that I caught on the second viewing that I thought were really cool yeah the cutting of the scars uh when Dahlia or or Kitty is cutting in the the smiley face with the scissors after she had killed her family is like another moment where that entire scene is done through a reflection. I liked that one too because it tried to almost like in a way humanize her character a little bit by having this really sweet sickening kind of music in the background and then it was as if she was like you know acting into the mirror she drew on the lipstick and she was like doing the fake laugh and it was weirdly off-putting but you know that without the context of who she is and what she does that we the audience have this is normal human behavior and it's like they are trying to assume that and do you think that her kind of carving that smile into her face is also a nod to how earlier on the beach she's telling Addie about how she like had like a facelift or something done absolutely that's good yeah i didn't even think about that that scene is also like foreshadowing of the whole look-alike scenario here because you know she's telling oh did you get something done and Addie just goes oh you look exactly like you did last year so it's already like planting the seeds of this this look-alike she's she's almost like a double of herself and this mirrored identity between who kitty is and who kitty wants to be or what she wants to look like and then there's also that third layer of dahlia it's interesting, too, to have a, a doppelganger movie with twins that are primarily featured in, in the movie. Yeah, the, the twin stuff was great. Also a Shining reference. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. I liked that one of the twins was wearing a black flag shirt, which was like just the mirror design of the black flag shirt that the, the I guess Duke Nicholson's character was wearing. Oh, yeah. And also having a Michael Jackson's Thriller show up. There's also a baseball game going on in the movie, and one team is Minnesota, and Minnesota's team is named the Twins. And the oh. game was tied at 11-11. <laughs> wow, I missed that. <laughs> That's a high-scoring game. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is also the time that it was when Adelaide is putting uh, her son to bed. Yeah, on top of the Jeremiah Bible verse, too. 
Yeah, all the Easter eggs. And there's there's someone wearing a Jaws shirt, and there's also that scene in the lake with Gabe and Abraham that's kind of reminiscent of Jaws. Right, 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 right. And also at the very beginning when it's showing on the TV, uh, the films that were on the left side of the television, one of them was Chud, which is about a bunch of sewer dwellers living in New York. There is a lot to this movie. Yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> lot going on. Going back to cinematography, like like Troy mentioned earlier, one scene that I thought was like really cool was the car explosion scene where Pluto is like doing the snapping over and over and they're like what is he doing and it's it's supposed to be like this the lighter yeah it's supposed to be like this lighter that jason can't get to light and it's also kind of like this ticking bomb kind of idea as well as soon as he started snapping i'm like oh the car is gonna explode it's just a really (laughs) cool mirror to earlier in the film If I can get real nerdy about movie making technique for a second, my absolute favorite shot in this movie is right before Red and Adelaide fight in the uh, in the underground when Red is kind of explaining what happened and what the tethered are. And there is a what's called a split diopter shot. And it's where two things on the screen at very different distances from the lens are in focus at the same time. And so you see, I can't remember if it's Adelaide is in the background and Red is in the foreground, like a real close up of mm-hmm. her face, but they're both in perfect focus. And I just found that to be a very, very cool image and a nice representation of at this point in the movie, you kind of realize you, you kind of understand both of their perspectives and their stories at the same time. There's something about that fight too, the way that they actually choreograph that fight that's so intriguing because they reduce Adelaide to this sort of grunting, snarling, primal, almost creature-like. She's making all of these like guttural noises in a way that sort of mimics how Red speaks normally, while Red, on the other hand, is incredibly poised throughout the whole fight. And in fact, gets in like a couple of slashes on Adelaide. And it's supposed to be a role reversal that is happening between the two of them that then enhances the fact that her son, Jason, is sort of afraid of her at the end. He sees her kill Red and is snarling and and making that like those like weird guttural sounds and is concerned. But then when they go up, it's revealed to the audience that it's like, oh, it's because they switched places uh, as children and that the Adelaide that we know had belonged to the underground. Yeah, there's this like, they both kind of revert to their their earliest years at the end of that fight. I also like the detail that Red is the only tethered that actually speaks words. Otherwise, they all just like scream or just grunt or make unintelligible noises. And it's because she learned to talk at a young age. The reason for her voice being so hoarse is that just years of silence. Oh, I was thinking that Red's voice was a result of the fact that she was strangled as a child. Yeah, that that would be a lot more obvious. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, and with like the whole Red Adelaide switch, it creates this really muddled up sense of identity around both characters. Because it's like, well, Red is the original Adelaide and Adelaide is the original Red. But we get to know them as their new identities. There's so many references to Adelaide being one of the tethered two. And I think that one of the significant ones is whenever one of the tethered specifically is in pain 
or is sad, they laugh. And when Adelaide kills Dahlia and also Red, she starts to like laugh hysterically which i think is sort of referential to that as well and also going back to that conversation between addy and kitty at the beach addy goes i just have a hard time talking so that gives you this idea of like addy's not like everyone else you know she she has this hard time with social interactions and that's the original idea but then later on it's it's because she she truly is the other. You know, there's also at the beach house, she she says to Gabe, her husband, she says, I just don't feel like myself. Yeah. That's probably how the tethered always feel. So that could be like an explanation for their anger and resentment. They are just a facsimile of this real person with a real history and a real life. And they're just kind of, as Red says, they're the shadow of this person. And it's, you can understand how they would grow to resent the person that they are shadow and the person who gets to feel the light of the sun and, and get to live their life is as opposed to you know someone who just is going through the motions of it the tethered don't have a sense of autonomy until they rise up and take it that totally makes sense this idea of, of resenting the people who have autonomy and don't appreciate it yeah and she, in, in in a way the red that is underground has to sort of teach them autonomy because as we see them they are mirroring what their above ground counterparts are doing like very specific they're all doing the same motions to the degree that they can and it is not until red is there that we can assume that they started to develop and learn that they could take autonomy back and i think it goes to serve her individual plan as well that's like going back to what i was saying about being coming aware of your place in the system and that's what red says to addy right before they fight i never would have learned to dance without you yeah, it was some, something like that. It shows that the dancing is kind of like what set it off for her, and then she acted as this catalyst for all the others, you know, taking them out of their place within the system so that they can also see that they don't have to be a part of this. Yeah, and it's interesting because it sort of implies that the one that is above ground controls the one that is underground. Mm -hmm. Because if they switched places, it would never have been about Red being able to dance because obviously she's the real one why would she be controlled by the fake version maybe she never was really but also it's the original red or addy however you want to think about her came up obviously wasn't being controlled by the original addy when she you know strangles her and replaces her so she had some autonomy before anyone else even realized. So I guess, I don't know if she's like some special case. Yeah, it's it's either that she is sort of a special case because they talk about her as a savior, or it's just that once you get to that, that sort of like inflection point where a person gets close enough to going underground, then the tethering kind of isn't as strong. I don't know. That's, that's one of the many things of, about the like quote unquote rules of this movie that I think don't make a whole lot of sense, but that's okay because it's... It doesn't have to. <laughs> right. It doesn't need to totally hold up against logic. There's a, I'm fine suspending some disbelief in this case. It doesn't deter from the rest of the movie's themes. And we could even say that maybe the reason that all of this happens is because the, the rabbits have been treated with some kind of chemical that connects them. You know, there's a whole bevy of potential explanations that we could try to come up with, but to what end does it serve to try to make those connections? Going back to what you said earlier, Matt, about the kind of laws of it being the people 
underground are controlled by their counterparts above is just interesting because the whole government experiment was designed to do the opposite. They're trying to control Americans by controlling their underground counterparts so that it was all hidden under the surface. Mm -hmm. That's a further testament of the injustice that American government can often be blind to. And it makes you wonder, like, do the tethers have the same memories as their originals? Like, there, there are so many, so many of these questions that... Yes, they do. It does because when Red first ties or uh, locks Adelaide to the table, she talks about their lives, about how uh, about how Adelaide gave birth in a hospital, and oh yeah, you know the the separation between two. She she mentions sort of circumstances by which the two characters shared events in drastically different ways like for example she said while the the one above had a c-section but but red she had to cut pluto out herself which then begs the question if the body on the surface dies does the tether die i would think so yeah that's one of the like sort of dumb questions i had about like the rules of this world is not only just when if the person on the surface dies does the tether die but things like how do you necessarily end up with the same sex children as the the above ground you know what i mean there's like there's so many things that are just sort of like biological chance that if you dig too deep into it it starts seeming really ridiculous i mean if they were perfect copies of each other and they were let's say the the dna was mixed at the same time by the same people then i i don't know that's more of like a philosophical slash yeah (laughs) physiological question of like given identical acts would the same outcome happen and there's no there's absolutely no way of telling that yeah i just i think it's sort of undermined by when you see the flashbacks and you see like how the tethered move in comparison with the people above ground it's this kind of broken like bad approximation instead of like a a necessarily perfect match which obviously is like why the government program was abandoned but it just makes me it was one of those things where i was like oh this this doesn't really uh hold up to too much scrutiny (laughs) yeah it's almost like multiverse theory except the two universes are like stacked on top of each other um going in a different direction here the title us there is that big reveal moment of oh it's us like when jason says that in the living room and they look at their their tethers and but also do you think that there is also the u.s like united states meaning behind that yeah because she says we're americans so much of the message is pointing out the flaws in the the social injustices of our country and I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, I have a bunch of one-off, just interesting things that I noticed in this movie. I don't know if we just want to, like, run those down or or what. Go for it. (laughs) There are no guns in this movie. I found that fascinating. It's all, I mean, because, first of all, scissors are scary, and big big scissors are scary, so that it was really effective, but it struck me this time. It's like, there are so many situations in almost any horror, thriller, or action-type movie where, like, at least one character in this situation would have a gun. Yeah, the guns, they kind of take suspense away, because it's, like, the quick and dirty solution in in a lot of cases but also makes you wonder like what the implications are there like the firearm issue that we have in america yeah i did read that the the town that this was filmed in and i guess ostensibly takes place in is like a super super liberal area so it doesn't surprise me that there wouldn't necessarily be a lot of gun owners there but it just again it just from a movie perspective it just struck me as oh like normally most writers would have a gun somewhere in this 
Which is remarkably refreshing, uh, if I do say so myself, mm-hmm. to have a, an apocalyptic movie setting without firearms. Yeah, and it makes for just much more visceral fighting. And I guess this is as good a time as any to bring up, like, how much do you think race plays a role in the messages of this movie? Yeah, so one of the reviews that I read of this movie mentioned that the writer, he, he found it refreshing that this movie is about a black family, but their race is not necessarily central to the plot. Like, you could make this movie with a white family, and a lot of the ideas would, would still be there. But it's just cool to see a black family at the center of a movie like this. Yeah, which is nice. That's sort of something that I think a white filmmaker would probably not do as well. There's always that desire for representation in movies. You see a lot of stuff about queer movies. Almost every movie with a central gay character or where the the main character is gay is about specifically that character's trauma as a result of them being gay, which for many people watching is in itself traumatizing so trying to take away that potential trauma that can occur just from showing that same sort of repeated struggle is nice to see that it's like so many people were upset with uh hancock the superhero movie with will smith because it was the first superhero movie with a black lead character and they made hancock just an absolute dirtbag and it's like well no we we wanted a superman We didn't want this character. We wanted somebody who was actually good. And you can do struggle without having to make the character shitty. And so it's this idea of like representation. And there is a lot of black stereotypes in horror movies. And it's usually like, oh, the black guy's the one that gets killed first. Or he's a gang member that is skeptical. And there's never something that is just wholesome and uh as horror centric as this movie is the family dynamic is a wholesome normal family yeah you know down to the back talking teenager and like the introverted younger boy the scene in the car where they're bonding over the music that's what you would see like 30 years ago with some movie about a road trip with a, with some white family but you don't you never would have gotten that representation back then yeah and uh, it's also serves to further contrast with the with Kitty's family the main white family in this movie who hate each other <laughs> and they're always at each other's throats and aren't coordinating in their defense against their tethers at all well they're so busy fighting among themselves they have no idea what's even going on they have no time to actually prepare for who they should be fighting Right. Which also reminds me, we should talk about the digital assistant and the the good vibrations scene, which is just amazing. Oh, so funny. With uh, the Beach Boys playing in the background. Which reminds me that the uh, digital assistant stand-in, and this is called Ophelia, which is Mm -hmm. your second week in a row with a Hamlet reference in your movie. Oh, that's true. Ophelia is Greek for the help. Really? Yeah. I don't know if that means anything. I mean, it's a digital assistant, Matt. It, yeah, I know it meant something. I just didn't want to say it. designed to help. <laughs> oh, you just wanted me to mansplain it to you. Yeah, exactly. I also love that he's like, call the, call the police, and it plays fuck the police. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely like that old Jordan Peele career humor in it. It's clever, and it breaks up the sort of horror really well. I mean, most movies, they need the comedic relief moments and i think that this is probably in one of the best uses of that that i've seen in in quite a long time 
It baffles me that this only has a 6.8 on IMDb. I'm just saying. I just really? looked it up. Yeah, and I almost can bet why it has that low of a rating, and I'm sure we all can guess why. It's it's disappointing because I, I think that this is a really good movie, and being super well-educated in horror movies, the amount of love and homages that this makes to other horror movies is astounding. Everything means something here, and you don't get to see that a lot, and it's also entertaining. Matt, you were just saying that it pays homage to like so many horror movies and, and tropes, but also I, I feel like it denies expectation in just the right moments. Like, for example, the whole doppelganger idea, like whenever you get the evil twin in popular media, there's always like the standoff scene where someone's holding the gun and then there's the two identical versions of them. And I'm the real, I'm the real Addy or no, I'm the real Addy. And you, there's this moment of tension and there's never that. So I just like that they deny that expectation of like, oh, this is going to happen at some point. But then it just doesn't because they're all wearing, all the tethers are wearing red jumpsuits that very much distinguishes them from their original copy. That sort of plays into the idea that both Addie and Red have fully assimilated into the lives that they traded for. Or, well, not that they both traded for, but... They're both, like, settled in their places. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. One more little Easter egg that happened that is is also like a really great foreshadowing thing is the frisbee that lands perfectly yeah. yeah there's so much at that beach scene that is so meaningful later on but when you're first watching it you're just like oh they're at the beach you know they're just having their vacation but that frisbee it's red and it's got a gold star on it which is so obviously representative of the red jumpsuit and the gold scissors and it lands perfectly over that blue dot on the, the beach blanket, it's foreshadowing that complete replacement that the tethered are after. Yeah, yeah the it's like the entire movie is contained in that beach scene. It's kind of remarkable. Jordan Peele is just good at making movies. Yeah. He should do more. Oh, wait. He's working on it. Candyman. I'm so excited. Now that I've seen Candyman, I'm like so pumped for this. Uh, I have a potential trivia game related to the quotes that I already know that you're going to get one of them correct. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so this is for, for the two of you. I created uh, this little trivia game called Us or Them. Is it a quote from the movie Us in 2019 or the movie Them about giant ants that attack people from the 1950s? <laughs> <laughs> and this one you already know, so I'm just going to read it. And to think, if it weren't for you, I would never have danced at all. It's, it's them, it's right? <laughs> 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 All right, here's the next one. No, we haven't seen the end of them. We've only had a close view of the beginning of what may be the end of us. Is this Dr. Harold Medford from the movie Them at the end of the movie? Or is it the news reporter voiceover at the end of us? That's definitely them. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it's them. I don't think anyone in this movie talks like that. Yeah, it is them. All right, now they both have biblical quotes, so this one's going to be potentially the hard one. We may be witness to a biblical prophecy come true, and they shall be destruction and darkness come upon creation. Is this said by Harold Medford, the same guy that I mentioned earlier, or was it said by Jordan Peele during the voiceover of The Haunted House at the beginning? Oh, was that actually Jordan Peele's voice? Yes. Yes. Okay, awesome. Um, 
I feel like it doesn't make any sense for that to be said in a hall of mirrors. I'm going to go with them. Yeah, same. It was them. I tried to trick you. And then the last one that I have, which you should absolutely get. Did you know that there's fluoride in the water? Is that like a paraphrase of the... Because that's where um, Zora is like talking about the government conspiracy where there's like yeah. the, the chemical that the government's trying to control is with the fluoride. Yeah, I didn't finish the quote. Oh. It could be, it could be a paraphrase. Well, we got it anyways. It's us. <laughs> <laughs> it is us. Good. Really easy. I was just uh, banking on the name being funny. <laughs> no, I, I, I like the comparison. <laughs> yeah, they're very different, but very similar movies in the idea of ants, the smallest creatures, suddenly become large and terrifying and murderous. Much like how in this movie, the characters come from un- the underground to attack and kill as above, so below. A different horror movie that could be the name of this horror movie. Wow. Thanks for joining us, Troy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we'll probably we'll have you again. You've been a delightful guest. Awesome. I would love to return. Yeah. You are a fellow musician and film enthusiast. You've, you've probably consumed more pieces of media than anyone I know. Troy's like just always reading books, listening to music, watching movies, watching TV shows, and like just has such a knowledge of the, well, not, not necessarily popular media, but just media overall. And I don't mean news news outlets, but you, you might have pretty good knowledge Although there's of some well. of that too. I have spent a lot of time reading the news over the, la- the last year. <laughs> and why is that? <laughs> I don't know. Anyways... Yeah, thank you for joining us, Troy. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of Watch New Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And this is Troy. We're human, too, you know. 